Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto. Today we'll be interviewing two people, starting with Amor Tolls, author most recently of A Gentleman in Moscow. How's it going today? Great. It's good to be here uh, back in New Orleans. Oh, I'm very happy to have you and so glad you got a chance to visit. Thank you. Um, you said back in New Orleans, right? Well, you know, actually, I've never I've never been here as an author. I've been here as, uh, you know, a tourist and a fan uh, uh-huh. a number of times. But, uh, but yes, this is... For my first novel, Rules of Civility, I did not come through New Orleans. Um, so it's really a, a pleasure to come through town for A Gentleman in Moscow. Well, I, I'm glad, and I'm super excited to talk about the book and a little yeah. bit about you as a writer. Sure. Um, when did you start writing? What, what kind of drove you to that? Because I know you had another uh, profession that you're in before moving full-time to this. Yeah, I began writing as a kid. Yeah. So I wrote fiction in high school, in, graduate, in college and graduate school, Um and when I was 25, I moved to New York City and joined a friend of mine who had started an investment firm. And 20 years later, we were still working side by side. So uh, for most of my old friends, the shock was that I ended up in the investment business, not that, you know, that I ended up writing. Um, you know, that, that was the one that was confusing. Um, but yeah, so I've been writing since I was a kid. It's always been my my uh, my greatest passion. And, and uh, when I joined my friend in the early years as we were building the firm, I stopped writing fiction yeah. you know, for kind of a decade. But in the back of my mind, thinking I better get back to it at a certain point or I'm going to end up, you know, bitter and a drinker. Or, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when I was about uh, 35, I, I wrote a novel, you know, while still on the job uh, in my spare time. And it took me about seven years and I didn't like that book. Yeah. Um, and so I went, took what I learned from that process and started over and wrote a new book. And that was Rules of Civility. And when that became a bestseller, I retired from uh, our firm, um, which continues to go on and thrive and wrote A Gentleman in Moscow as a full-time author. No, I, I love that. And a lot of people I've worked that kind of do have professional obligations and kind of write on the side. It's a really difficult thing. Um, did you feel like that novel that you kind of abandoned after that was kind of like clearing the pathway to kind of get certain things out of there and really help you along with the process? Well, you certainly, given how long it is, I mean, it's seven years on a single work of art. Yeah. You know, to get at the end of it and not like it is pretty, you know, dispiriting. So, yeah, you, you certainly want to reflect on on that project as a way of somehow, re, uh, you know, salvaging, uh, not the material, but but the process, the yeah. investment of time. And, and um, so, uh, you know, to your point, what came out of that for me, because um, I'd written fiction for, at that point for for decades, but I'd never written a novel. Yeah. So, so that is its own challenge. Um, and what I learned from that failed novel uh, was really two things. The first was that I'm an outliner. Yeah. Um, the I do like uh, in my work for... In essence, the the subject matter, the details, the conversations, the reflections of the first half of the novel to sort of lay a lot of groundwork that kind of converges in the second half, mm-hmm. in a way, in informing the actions of the characters, the uh, what the conclusions that they come to, the course of events, the accumulation of imagery. And it's very hard to kind of uh, to have this dynamic where the front half has such strong bearing on the back half without some planning. Yeah. Know? And so uh, in, in as much as, you know, if you want to achieve that particular aspect uh, of, a, of a reading experience in a novel, planning matters. And so so that was the first thing. I realized I'm an outliner. And the second thing was that in, in looking at that failed book, a lot of my favorite parts were parts that I had written in the first year and in some cases never changed. And whereas like parts in year six and seven, you know, were still were, were driving me crazy. And um yeah, so I, I sort of felt like there is something about that first year of your engagement with your material uh, where you're you're sort of the most free, the most light, 
the most inventive, uh, the most energetic, you know, most bright. Um, and the, the more years you're working on, on laying, you know, that ground, the, that material down, the the more cumbersome it can become. Yeah. So I, I, I thought I got I want to make the most of that that first year. So what I did is when I set out to write a new book, I did outline it very in advance for more than a year. And when I started writing that book, I gave myself one year to write the first draft. Ah. Um, and but then I I revised that book from beginning to end three times over three years. But at least I had. Every chapter in the book was at least crafted in that first year where you, where I was I felt most energetic and and rules of civility was the product of that experiment if you will and, and you know that book uh, for those who've read it um, will find this may find this funny or for those who haven't that book is tells one year in the life of a young woman in New York in 1938 mm-hmm. and it begins on New Year's Eve uh, going into 1938 and it ends a year later on New Year's Eve in essence and. Um, that's I designed that book in the course of 2005, and I began writing it on January 1st, 2006. You know, and, and that book I ended right. I finished writing that book on New Year's Eve that year. Um, you know, playing out that uh, that commitment to following a single year in in which the the first draft was written. And here's kind of a crazy thing. That book has 26 chapters because mm-hmm. there's 52 weeks in the year, <laughs> and I designed it so that I could write a book for write a chapter for a week edit that chapter for a week, and then move on yeah. and keep that forward momentum going. But then, as I say, I, I still had a couple of years of revisions uh, after that year was concluded. But so that was very productive. And then I approached Gentleman Moscow very much in the same way. Yeah, I think that's great. You have to find kind of the ways and means of doing your writing in that way. And some people never find that, which I think kind of stymies a lot of potential because they just get bogged down in like like your seven years, like yeah. treading water and kind of the tedium kind of comes up more than the actual enjoyment. So I love that you were excited and kind of like based your own formatting and structuring off of that excitement. Yes. You know, I, I, I think I, I look back at, um, at you, know, you look at Picasso's body of work or Matisse's, um, they were so prolific. Yeah. And, and, and if you... If you actually kind of go look at, uh, you know, five-year period, the different kinds of work they were doing, and if you see, uh, uh, you know, a seriously curated show about one of those phases, you realize that there wasn't just the eight famous paintings that we now all know from that period. There were drawings. There were, you know, smaller paintings. There were, you know, collages. There were, you know, they were working in ceramics. It just mm-hmm. goes on and on. You realize that they approach their art in this idea of just, I'm just going to keep making it, yeah. you know, and, and we'll, we'll figure out what the masterpieces are later, you know, <laughs> and and that's, a, I think, a very, you know, for young artists, it's a very important thing to remember is that, you know, you don't want to spend 10, 15 years on the masterpiece and not be actually concluding anything. You know, you're much better off constantly sort of generating work in some fashion um, because you learn a lot through that process. Yeah, and not everything has to be the most... Absolutely not. Yeah, exactly. I I love that. Um, Speaking speaking of art, uh, do you... What do you get from other mediums? You seem to know a bit about Picasso Matisse. Um, As far as, like, in your own writing has, looking at other mediums and other artists' progressions and their own, like, uh, narratives of their lives and their artistic output, has that helped you in any way? Well, I can answer that... You can answer that question in kind of a multi-layered fashion. Yeah. But so in in the most direct sense, you know, for those who have read A Gentleman in Moscow, they or who are interested in doing so, you know, that book uh, spans you know thirty years. I'll just quickly say it's about a you know an account, uh, sorry, a, a Russian aristocrat who is sentenced to house arrest in uh, one of the, uh, the finest hotels in Moscow in 1922, and the book spends thirty years inside the walls of that hotel. And he is someone who was born in the 19th century and raised 
in 19th century culture as an aristocrat. So that book is, is, is very much infused with uh, uh, an array of artistic inputs mm-hmm. because as someone who is under house arrest, you know, he's in confinement, but who was trained in, in 19th century arts and literature, um, part of the way that he survives those decades is by turning to the literature that he loved by, uh, he's a great lover of uh, classical music, you know, the music from the classical tradition. Um, uh, a young woman who he is asked to keep an eye on is a, becomes a piano player and, you know, is, in, is influenced by his uh, love of, you know, of classical composers. And um, so in that book, there is, it is littered, you know, yeah. it is littered with, with, with novels, with philosophers, with uh, bodies of uh, musical works yeah. that influence um, the tone of the work, the, uh, the themes of the work, uh, you know, et cetera. So, so that's kind of one answer to your question, right? Is this a very practical thing? And, and by another thing is that there, at a certain point in that novel, the count is asked by a senior member of the party um, to educate him on the West, mm-hmm. kind of in secrecy. Um, and one of the ways that the count ultimately does that is they watch American movies together. Hmm. You know, so uh, the this is a novel which uh, there there are many works of fiction that I admire, and some. And I that are minimalist in shape, you know, yeah. Chekhov and, and Raymond Carver and Hemingway. And this is not a minimalist novel. This is a maximalist novel. Yeah. There are many, many things that are dragged into it in the course of this this 30 years. And um, so and a lot of those things are things that I care about. So on the one hand, these are are elements of the motifs and the themes and the uh, that, that populate the, the narrative uh, in the world of the count. But on the other hand, a lot of those things are things that I that have enriched me and nourished me, yeah. as you know, as you're saying, as an artist. Um, and so it's kind of fun to drag them in to the body of the work um, uh, because I enjoy spending time with those things, whether it's Tchaikovsky or uh, the works of Tolstoy, yeah. both of which play an important part in the course of the novel. <laughs> I think that's super interesting. And again, building on that excitement, things that you really like and finding a way to input that into the structure of your novel and into your work. Um, There's a focus on the periphery in your work and bringing up details in a similar way that um, filmmaker Alfonso Cuaron does and making sure that those peripheral details and characters are not just caricatures, but have a mind of their own or integral to whatever is going on. Yes. Um, how do you start editing those things and kind of building those layers? Is it something like you're consciously doing or you're just building on top of it over time? Uh, yeah, you know, so, and again, I think, you know, I'd like to kind of take this in, t- in two parts. Yeah. You know, the first is that I, I do think that in in crafting narrative and, and different authors approach narrative in different ways and, and different kinds of books give us different kinds of pleasure and different access. And, but for me, um, I am very interested. I think your, your terminology of the periphery, uh, speaks to me very, in a very direct way. Um, I, I think of it as, uh, you know, if you're walking through a, someone's bedroom, it's almost, you know, the items that are in the corner of your eye that are on the bedside table are, uh, maybe the things, you know, or that were kind of left on the bureau top from, you know, the night before. You yeah. go to a party, you get undressed quickly, you leave a few things in the bureau. Somehow that's the stuff that, that, that is about that person's life, you know, that tells us some, gives us some hint of what happened last night and what this person is like and, you know, their cufflinks and, you know, there was a you know shirt dropped on the floor and you know yeah. but but you know but the you know but the the bow tie was hung up very carefully and you know whatever we don't you know this very strange sort of things but but somehow that brings to life the room to the people it gives us and I, I do think that um, that can be a much more powerful way of 
of both setting a scene and explaining the set of circumstances or bringing them to the surface for the reader than saying, you know, the night before, mm-hmm. you know, you know, they, they got in a fight at a bar, you know, or, or at the ball or something, you know. Um, and so, uh, so I, I am very interested sort of in that dynamic. And when, uh, when I'm writing and when I've planned a, uh, you know, a scene or interaction or a series of events or a, a philosophical reverie in the course of the narrative, while I'm writing, I am kind of, trying to walk into the room myself and look look around, you know, and, and what's there and <clears throat> what somehow resonates uh, particularly with the, the sentiments of this moment or the concerns of this moment and, um, and, and, and think about that. Now, so in a, in a bigger way, that happens with characters too, yeah. as you say. And you start with kind of a core ensemble, you know, um, and as you're writing very often, if it's going well, um, the you know characters seven through ten, if you want to put it that way, who aren't the central figures, and they're not you know, um, can in order to to make them, uh, you don't want them to be fifth business, you know, yeah. they, you know where they're just sort of passing through and just filling a blank and whatever, you know, they should have their own identity and their own personality, and they should play their own role in the story, even if it's brief, but almost by virtue of that, once you start to give them that you know, that, uh, that reality, that three-dimensionality, that, that personality, yeah. so that they aren't just a fill-in-the-blank, well, then they start to demand more time. Yeah. You know, they want to be heard now, you know, and so, and you realize, wait a second, I can't just brush past it. So one of the interesting things that has happened to me in both of my books is, both of my novels, is that in a very important aspect of the revising process, as I say, I tend to revise my first draft from beginning to end two or three times, is... In both cases, one of the meaningful aspects of, say, you know, the second and third revision is it's the bit characters. I'm taking material away from the central characters. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm like, okay, we don't need that conversation. That's that's redundant. Or we don't need to have this scene go on so long. We don't need, to, you know, this dinner that they're having is so like the last one, let's make it into a single dinner. You know, yeah. I'm actually taking material away from the central characters. But the reverse is happening with, this, with the characters, as, you know, as I say, six through ten, you know, where they're like, wait a second, you know, why wasn't I in that room? Or, yeah. you know, why, why, you know, why, I should be the one who... Who tells him that, you know, not that person and, and, you know, kind of in this sort of funny way. So, so yes, they, if you looked between draft one and draft three, the main character's material is shrinking and the, uh, the, the peripheral characters, it's, it's growing in force. Now, sometimes it, you know, when it's going well, it doesn't mean that, you know, you write 30 new pages, mm-hmm. but it may be that you've laid enough groundwork for that person that in three pages, one interaction, you know, it can suddenly they play a central role in in the in the experiences of the main character. You know, in other words, you don't have to kind of go write a whole new book. Yeah, it's just that you've built this thing. You, they just haven't had the chance to to fully impact uh, the narrative and to express themselves in a sharper way. And um, so that's always been a fun part of me, the rising process to bring those peripheral characters into gr- in a sharper focus. No, I, I love that, and I think that that's really cool that you get a chance to do that. Um, to kind of go on another topic before we leave off, yeah. um, what book has been most influential to your own writing, and, and or what book do you keep coming back to time and time again? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 54, yeah, and I've been writing and reading since first grade, yeah. So I am there. I, it's hard. I'm not a one book guy, in yeah, that sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, when I was 25, maybe. You know, at this point, um, I have dedicated you know years to reading and, and loving an array of not only writers, but movements, you yeah. know, and, and I've fallen in love at a certain time with, uh, 
the American Renaissance, you know, figures like Whitman and Thoreau and Emerson and Dickinson and uh, and uh, but then I've you know loved the Latin American realists, you know, like Marquez and his peers. I've enjoyed the French experimentalists. Uh, and, you know, the great uh, American Southern writers, you know, Eudora Welty and Faulkner. And, and so you're kind of, you kind of move over the course of your, your life as a, if you really care about reading, you go and read a bunch of works of Faulkner um, alongside perhaps, you know, uh, you know, other of his peers or people came before or after, you know, um, and, uh, and you draw from that and are in, in, and affected by that. Um, so it's kind of more like building blocks, you yeah. know, as you will, right, as opposed to single individuals. And certainly the Russians were, were uh, you know, a great influence of mine as well, which is part of the reason I decided to write this book set in Russia. Mm-hmm. It's because I was a lover of the 19th century uh, Russian writers um, and, and uh, wanting to, to spend some time in some imagined version of Russia. Yeah, and um, reacting to that tradition because you're yes. immediately after that, you yeah. know, like you're yes. writing in that space right there. Yeah, and, and you know, so I guess though I should say that in a more direct answer to your question, my three favorite books probably are uh, War and Peace, uh, Moby Dick by Melville, and uh, and uh, Hundred Years of Solitude by Marquez. Good choices. Which kind of share, uh, in, in retrospect, I didn't think about this in when I was reading them, certainly, but in retrospect, they kind of share a certain scope. Yeah. You know, those three books are, they're, they're, they cover a lot of time, a lot of people, a lot of events, a lot of life, a lot, um, and, I, and I like that about those books. Um, and they do it in a way that's still very organic and cohesive. Yeah. You, know, you sort of feel like there couldn't have been another word and there wasn't a word missing. You know, it was very, <laughs> you know, they, and the ends are very satisfying, the endings of those books, and um, and they're you know, very multi-layered. And uh, so, you know, yeah, those are... Uh, uh, have enriched me a great deal and are on our things to strive for. Yeah. Some of the things those authors pursue. I, I love that. And they both are, they all three kind of indulge in the macro and micro, right? That's correct. At the same, they balance that so yeah, well. That's and right. it, it's so hard to find that, you yes, know? Yes. And they're also all very weird, like yes. very weird. They're in very ways idiosyncratic. That, yes. Yeah. yeah. That's a, uh, they don't feel derivative in any way. Um, and you're right. They move very freely from the scope of history to what the individual is doing, you know, over tea. Yeah. And uh, and I think that's, yeah, I love the, that quality of those books. <laughs> well, fantastic. Um, well, to kind of wrap us up, um, yeah. one question I tend to ask people are, uh, what are you reading now? And also, what, what's next for you? I know you're promoting this book now, but are you working on a new project? Uh, I... I uh, well, take the we'll do the reading first and the project yeah. second. I read with three friends, and we've been reading together for about uh, you know, more than fifteen years. And and kind of as I implied a second ago, we read in projects. Yeah. So we will pick up uh, an author and really pursue the author over time. So you know, last year we read uh, seven novels of Philip Roth and uh, and about uh, six novels of Toni Morrison. Yeah. Um, and you know, that, those were great. Projects really a lot of fun, um, and, and right now we are reading uh, the Jewel in the Crown, which is an incredible uh, um, saga by a British author about uh, you know life in India uh, around the time of the Second World War, yeah. and is uh, you know an eight novel or four novel but very long four novels uh, saga, and, and it's terrific. Um, but in terms of what I'm working on, I, I'm I've started a new novel, and it is about uh, three 18 year old boys who are on their way from. Nebraska to New York City in 1954. Oh. 
And that's kind of about all I would tell you about that. that that's perfectly fine. What, uh, as not plot content, but where are you in the drafting process in your year kind of structural thing? Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, as I say, I'm an outliner, so I do tend to spend at least a year outlining and that process is behind me. I am now, you know, in the I'm, writing section, I'm in the writing cycle and I'm, you know, I'm on chapter three of 10. So, yeah. You know. Okay. But well. then of course I have a couple of years of revision going on after that. <laughs> so hold, don't hold your breath. Well, that's exciting though. Um, one final question that yeah. I was just thinking about, um, if you could have been writing in one of those movements that you've um, read and reacting in the time of that movement, what would you have wanted to be a part of? Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating question. I mean, you know, again, I think that evolves over time. Yeah. You know, because when you're 20, you want to be in the beat generation. Of course. You know, I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> of course, you know, why wouldn't you want to be, you know? And so, and I think there's, I, I don't, uh, and, I, and I say, each one of those groups of writers uh, that I, I mentioned are kind of, in small groups who are doing extraordinary things. The real answer probably is um, I would have loved, because it's not writers, but it's I would have loved to uh, have been uh, an intimate witness of the jazz scene in America in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just saying that because I'm in New Orleans, you know, and yeah, I mean, yeah. because you know, and, and I, I was... A lot of that was happening in New York City, and I could see the, you know, Miles Davis and uh, and all those, you know, the, the the bebop generation, you know, at the end of, of their run, and Davis at the beginning of his run, uh, in you know the clubs in New York City in the fifties. That would have been awesome. You yeah, know? and and you could just tell that it's it's one of those moments in time where. Uh, that you know whether it's Thelonious Monk or you know the you know Charlie Parker or John Coltrane, where they're all listening to each other and thinking about each other and competing with each other, and what you end up having is in this very short period of time, you know you know in five years that you know or seven years there there did it made as many masterpieces in jazz and vinyl you know as in the in the in the thirty years prior and certainly the thirty years since and and so. But because there's that sort of chemistry of interaction going playing out, uh, you know, on a daily basis as yeah. they as they listen and and you see the musicians moving from you know quintet to quintet to quartet to quartet, you know, and you know showing up in the other guy's band and the other guy's band, you know, this album, that album, and uh, you know what a great amount of chemistry that was. Yeah, oh, I think that's fantastic. Good answer.